listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's open it to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in front of the chair. Every other rack has a Bible, hopefully, in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as our gift to you. I think it'd be helpful for you to follow along. The scriptures that we're going to read this morning will be on the screen, but I think there's just something special about having God's Word in front of you. We're going to start reading in John chapter 11 at verse 17 and consider one of the most well-known and glorious stories in the Bible. We've been working our way through the gospel of John on Sundays here since about a year and a half now, and uh, we are in this beautiful story of resurrection. As you're finding that, let me mention that uh, uh, my wife just reminded me as I was coming up that today is April 17th. This is the 17th anniversary of this church. We planted this church 17 years ago. Praise God. Uh, But that's not really a big deal in comparison to the fact that today is Resurrection Day. So uh, happy birthday, Crosspoint, but get over it. More important things. Um, It's just so, I'm so grateful to see you. Uh, And I'm so grateful to have my my dear friend Tommy with us and the work that they are doing in Africa. Uh, Tommy's going with us, all the pastors and a few other people are going to a conference uh, tomorrow. He'll be with us all week. And Tommy's just become a dear friend. And uh, I was with Tommy in India five or six years ago, and Tommy almost did irreparable damage to my tongue by feeding me a pepper on the streets of India. And so I'll see if we can have some surprises for him at lunch today. The most important thing that we can do this morning is to meet God in His Word. There's something just special and fun and festive and glorious about Easter. You guys look really good. Some of you are not sitting in the right spot, and it's throwing me off a little bit. You look good, but there's something, there's just something about Easter. This is our 17th Easter now as a church, and there's a strange kind of distraction that can happen in in all of the good things. Let's not let that happen this morning. Let's not miss meeting God in His Word. And in God's kind providence, we are considering a story today that I think is just wonderfully appropriate for this Resurrection Sunday. So here's the flow. I'm going to read through this text, stop along the way, make some comments. I just want the story and the truths from the story to come alive to us this morning. And then I just have two summary statements at the end, and then we'll sing and pray. Let me, let me pray now before I read and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, every Sunday is the Lord's Day and Resurrection Sunday. But certainly we mark the importance of the church universal in South Africa and Mexico and Canada and Zimbabwe and Uganda and France and Ukraine and Russia and all across the world that remember this day 
Not necessarily because this is the day on the calendar that Jesus rose from the grave, but it marks the celebration that we remember the very center of our faith that God died and that God rose again and that God has saved a people. So as we look at this story of the resurrection of Lazarus, may we see ourselves, may we see you rightly. And may Christians worship you more passionately and may any unbelievers that are present, Lord, may you and your kind mercy cause them to pass from spiritual death to spiritual life as they trust in Jesus. Do this all for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 17, we considered the verse 16. First 16 verses last Sunday as Robert led us through that wonderful passage of thinking about how Jesus loves Mary and Martha and their brother. And the scene in John chapter 11 is that this friend of Jesus, Lazarus, has passed away. And the sisters, Mary and Martha, are calling for Jesus. And remember, it seems like Jesus has delayed coming to the scene, coming to Lazarus. And in the meantime, Lazarus has passed away. And we get to the culmination of the story this morning. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now that detail is important. There's a few other accounts in the gospels where Jesus has, he brings somebody back from the dead, this little girl at one point and one other. But this detail in John is particularly important because John is wanting to accentuate and make sure we understand that it's been a few days and, and John is dead. He's not just possibly in a coma. He's dead. And that, that detail is going to even become clearer as we work through this passage. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, there's a tradition. There was a tradition in first century Judaism and in really historic Judaism where where when somebody died, it was much longer of a process and a much more personal process than we would have in, in our context. It's, it's kind of quick, and, and you don't really see the body, but in, in first century Judaism, there would have been uh, really hired mourners. It sounds very foreign to us, kind of like, does that seem almost kind of put on? You would actually hire people that would be dozens of people that would come to your house, and the mourning process was up to a week, about seven days, where these people, the the burial would happen very quickly, but then the mourning process would, would span over about seven days, and it involved the hiring of people that were professional mourners that would come to your house and mourn and wail with you. Now, to our ears, that sounds strange and almost put on and maybe even kind of for show and hypocritical, But in a way, it was the Jewish way of really honoring life. And there was actually a lot of of selflessness. And these people were serving one another, really valuing life and death. And that's what's happening here, even though surely there's no doubt it was abused on some level, even that good tradition. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And I think Robert drew our attention to this last week. But remember, Mary and Martha 
are these two sisters along with her brother Lazarus who fed Jesus. They were intimate friends with Jesus. They were probably part of his inner circle, good friends. And there's this famous biblical story about these two sisters in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus actually comes to Bethany to their house and Mary and Martha bring him over for dinner. And you'll remember Martha is, is the one, she's sort of busy serving. She's in the kitchen slaving away. And, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, anointing him with oil and, and listening to his teaching. And, and then Martha, kind of the busybody, she's like the, maybe the older sister, you know, the responsible one. And she comes out and she fusses at Jesus. And she's like, Jesus, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, tell Mary to get off her duff. I mean, I'm slaving away in the kitchen. What's going on here? Tell her to do something. Tell her to help, her out, help me out. And Jesus sort of scolds Martha, and he says, no, 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 don't. she has chosen the good portion. And so that's these two sisters. That's the same sisters that we read about in Luke chapter 10. More, more, on, more on their spirituality in a moment. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, listen to this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So she's expressing really faith in Jesus. But we'll see it's a kind of mixed bag. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So what's going on here? Martha is, is really showing that in many ways she was a, a well-discipled Jewish woman. Because the Jews believed in a final resurrection. In fact, that's hinted at in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, I think it is, Daniel talks about how there's coming a day when everything will go to dust, but, but I will, there will be a, a resurrection of the everlasting, to, to everlasting life for those that did right and those that did wrong, those that will go with and be with God forever, and those that will be sent away in judgment. That's a clear teaching of the Old Testament. Job, in, in all of his distress, utters these famous words in Job chapter 19 where he says that, that in the end I will stand and see the Lord with my flesh and that my Redeemer lives. And so Martha actually, when she's talking about the resurrection, notice here at this point, she's really talking about the end, the final resurrection. She still doesn't understand what, what Jesus is speaking about in verse 23 when he says, your brother will rise again. And so Jesus is about to correct her and we're going to see the plot thicken in just a moment. But I just want to pause and say that, that Martha and Mary, for that matter, who we're going to read about her interactions with Jesus in just a moment, I don't want you to zero in on their personality types that are accentuated in the Scripture. That's a good thing to do in another time. If we were looking at Luke chapter 10 and that famous scene where they've had Jesus over for dinner, that's a good thing to do. Maybe we, some of us need to, you know, ponder Jesus a little bit more. And quite frankly, I don't want to dog Martha that much. Some of us actually need to kind of do a little bit more work. So there's a kind of beautiful combination there. But I want us to see that these women are, are disciple, Jesus-loving, Jesus-following women. And even though they didn't get it quite right, nobody's getting it quite right in the gospel. And so they are a, a mixture of grace and weakness like us all. In fact, Martha reminds me a little bit. Do you remember this? Surely you do. When we started John, John's Gospel, this series of sermons, it was a year and a half ago. Surely you remember it. 
Remember at the beginning of John, when we read about John the Baptist? Now, I'm not talking about John the Apostle. He's the one that's writing this, John the Apostle. But the other John, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, there's this beautiful dichotomy in John the Baptist's life that's accentuated in the Gospels. In the beginning of John, John chapter 1, John the Baptist is this powerful, bold witness for Jesus. And he says, behold of Jesus, behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Bold preaching. But then later on, he gets thrown in prison for preaching righteousness to Herod. And he then sends word to Jesus to ask him, are you the one or should we expect another? So at the beginning of John, he's preaching. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Years later when he's in prison, are you the one? There's this boldness mixed with doubt. And we see even in Martha and Mary, there's this clarity on who Jesus is. Whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. You're the man. Jesus, I trust in you. In fact, in just a few verses, Martha is going to confess that Jesus is the one that God sent. But in the few verses after that, she's going to express doubt at the tomb of Lazarus. Here's my point. We're all like Mary and Martha and John the Baptist. We're this strange mixture of clarity and confusion, aren't we? All of us. I take great comfort in that. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, now verses 25 and 26 are some of the most important verses in all of this gospel of John. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Oh, gosh. You know what? Did I skip a couple verses? Let me go back to verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Back to verse 25. Jesus said to her, now he's going to clarify her understanding of the resurrection. He's saying, no, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked this most poignant of questions, do you believe this? And she said to him, verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So notice the mixture of, of Martha's faith. She, she, she doesn't quite yet understand. She's talking, thinking about a future resurrection, but, but Jesus is here to paint a picture for us. And, and Jesus is setting up this scene under the sovereignty and providence of the Son of God. The Trinity is setting up this scene, this resurrection from the dead of a man who will eventually die again to be a picture of what true life is. And true life is not just another few decades of this temporal life. It is to be in Christ forever and ever. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's drawing out of Martha. That's the picture he's going to paint for us in a few verses when he's at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's a resurrection and there's a life that is now. It's, it's trusting in me. And even though someone has died, yet he shall live. And even though 
we're going to see this. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Eventually, Lazarus died again. But Jesus' point is that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying that there's a trust, there's a belief, there's a hope, there's, there's a leaning on, there's a living in, there's a wholehearted devotion. It's not perfect. It's not unmixed with our doubt. It's not unmixed with our continuing sin and disobedience on some level, even after we're trusting in Him, but it's, a, it's, it's all of our hope. There's a resurrection. There's a day coming when we will stand, every one of us in this room, when we will stand before the Lord. And Jesus is saying that there's a a kind of resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. And he's not saying, I give it. There's not a life that he gives. He's saying that he is this life. Do you believe this? This is the question that Jesus asked Martha and that he's asking all of us. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, meaning Mary, the other sister now heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So here's these more. Just imagine the scene. These dozens of people, they're just trying to do their job. You know, they're picking up, running with Mary out. They're just setting up all of these witnesses to this interaction with Jesus. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's Mary saying the exact same words that Martha said. The same thing. Now I just, maybe this isn't the point, maybe I'm just reading this into it, but man, don't we influence one another? (laughs) Just to talk amongst family, just to just think about discipleship opportunities with your children, with your siblings. Martha has said the very same thing in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, Mary, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sounds a lot alike. These two sisters discipling one another, in this case, uh, in a misunderstanding of the power of Jesus. There's something to be said here about these sisters. Don't miss the fact that even in their incomplete, not yet fully realized understanding of who Jesus is, these sisters are a wonderful example of devotion to Jesus. These women in the first century, this would be countercultural that women would be held up in the Gospels as, as, as examples of faith. And, and this is especially, I think, important for us to realize in our world that hates women. And what do I mean by that? We have a world that's wanting to tell women that what it means to be a woman is to, be, to do everything that a man does. 
or even in some cases, demonically so, be a man. And here we see this beautiful picture of these two sisters who are held up as really not perfect, but exemplary worshipers, followers of Jesus, even in some of their incomplete understanding. I just want to say praise God. Praise God for women. Praise God for women in this church who serve so faithfully, who, who encourage one another in the Lord, who raise children, who, who, who bear with imperfect men. Praise God for the Marys and the Marthas in this congregation. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, listen to these verses. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Some of you maybe memorized this for a piece of candy in VBS. <laughs> Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? All right, well, let's stop there. What's going on here with the emotions of Jesus? Verse 33, the second half of it, Jesus is weeping. The Jews who had come with her were also weeping, but they're being paid to cry professionally. So there is a, there is a, a canyon between the weeping of Jesus and the weeping of these professional mourners, even if some of these mourners were family members who really loved Lazarus and who were really sad about it and the weeping of Jesus. Why do we know this? Because look at the second half of verse 33. It says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I, I took Greek in seminary. I don't, I don't know enough or remember enough about it to, to, to speak intelligently about different translations of various Greek words. But I do know that verse 33 is, is, is one of the more difficult verses in all of John to rightly express in our English language to capture the emotion of Jesus in this moment. What we have in our English Standard Version of the Bible translated deeply moved in his spirit is, is more than that really in the original language. It's an expression of not just sadness or sorrow, but of also anger. In fact, maybe more literally stated, it would be that Jesus was outraged. What is Jesus outraged at in this moment? So he's, yes, he's clearly sad. He's weeping. That's the conclusion of the Jews in verse 36. See how he loved him. Certainly that's the case. So that, but there's more going on than just the sadness of Jesus at the passing of his friend. He's angry. What's going on there? Well, some have concluded that maybe he was angry at the uh, kind of the fakeness or the commercialization of the hired mourners. I don't think that's it because that was a standard custom and they were really providing a service that would have been very appreciated by the family. I don't think that's it. 
Think what's going on there is we see this beautiful complexity of the passion of God for his people and the emotion of Jesus is coming out in this moment as a strange, glorious mixture of sadness and anger. And what is he angry at? I believe, and this is the, I think, the dominant interpretation of this from faithful Christians through the centuries, Jesus is angry at seeing one of his beloved suffering the consequences of sin and death in the grave and all of the sadness that it is producing these people that he loves. And Jesus, think about this now, think about this. Jesus, in just a moment, you know the story. Come on, this is, there's no suspense, I don't think. I hope you've read this before. If you haven't, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to bring Lazarus back from the dead in just a moment. And he knows he's going to do that. Jesus knows he's about to do that. And yet, in this moment, Jesus is sad for his friends and angry at the sin and the death that it has caused. And in that moment, Jesus does not say to these sisters, what are you doing, you of little faith? Just, just, just stop it, stop it. He enters into their grief and he weeps with them. Friends, that is phenomenal. It may be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's one of the most profound. Jesus enters into a broken world and he knows he's about to fix it and yet he grieves. That's glorious, friends. He's angry and he's merciful. He's angry at sin. And he's angry at the death that it's caused. And yet he's sorrowful over the sadness of his people, even though he knows he's about to turn it into glorious resurrection joy. Makes me think of these wonderful descriptions of Jesus in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, Hebrews 2.17, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or sacrifice for our sins. Just I don't have time to go on a rabbit trail on Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2. I do it often enough, and you put up with me so kindly every time I do it. But can we just, can we just for a second think about how Jesus feels about you if you're a Christian? He's merciful towards you. Look, he, you guys look, you do, I, I mentioned it earlier, you look good. You look good. Some people even got on a pink shirt today, and they just, they're, they're popping. They're just popping. And, you know, we got our best on today. But you know what? If, if, if we're honest, if we pulled back the curtain on our fears and our anxieties and maybe even our hidden sins and maybe even the complexity of our hearts in this room, friends, we would all be on some level or another mortified if everybody really knew what was going on. And what is Jesus' what is Jesus's emotion towards that? He weeps, he loves, he's, he's merciful, he identifies, he knows. He's, 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 he's not unsympathetic. Jesus is, is not detached in the heavens with his arms folded, 
with a scolding look on his face. Jesus knows everything about every one of us. He knows what we have done, what we are thinking, what we will do. And even if, regardless, if you are in Christ, he looks at us with a beautiful combination of love and sorrow and anger mixed together for our good. That's a stunning truth. And it's, it's not all anger. He's not a vengeful God. And it's, it's not all just grace. He's not just all kind of whatever. It's this beautiful, exalted, crucified, resurrected, reigning, sanctifying, merciful high priest who comes and he loves us. He knows everything about us. And he gives us all that he has. And he takes all that we have. And he makes us his own friends that can be yours if you trust in Jesus. That's a glorious truth. Memorize verse 35. It's easy, isn't it? Jesus wept. And consider that for your own life. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again. There's this emotion again. There's three times that the emotion of Jesus is mentioned. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, verse 39, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Now, again, Martha, I want you to, before we read what Martha says, I want you to remember Martha has, has expressed great faith in Jesus. But now she seems to take a step back, and I am strangely encouraged by Martha's vacillation. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Come on, you got a King James Version, some of you? It says that he, he stinketh. It's wanting to accentuate the fact that Lazarus is really dead, but it's also drawing out just this kind of, this mixture even in Martha's faith. She's not all there yet. And praise God, because none of us are. But Jesus says in verse 39, and this is stunning, maybe I'm making too much of this. And some of you that are, that are, that are maybe Bible study experts can correct me. Maybe I need to go to the reading the Bible class here in a couple weeks that is starting. But verse 39 says, take away the stone. I mean, if you're about to bring somebody back from the dead, can't you just do some hocus pocus and move the stone out of the way on your own? Aren't you sort of struck by that? I mean, if you're about to cause somebody that's decomposing, to all of a sudden come back to life, you think that rolling a stone would sort of be not that hard. But yet Jesus, could he have done that? Of course he could have done that. But he doesn't do that. He tells them to move the stone. I don't want to make too much of this, but I, I just think there's something to this. He enlists the help of people to move the stone. <laughs> How does God make little people grow up to be big people who love Jesus? Does he just, humana, 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 vroom. Or does he cause moms and dads or single moms or single dads to imperfectly pour out their life through the grace of the gospel, teaching them about Jesus? Does he use that and churches like Crosspoint to roll away the stone 
so that we can come to life. How does God make people his followers? He, he uses, it's the power, we're going to see in just a moment, it's the sovereign power of his life-giving word. But even though that's about to happen, he uses people to be part of the means of the miracle of sovereign grace. Nothing just kind of automatically happens normally in the way God works. He uses people to be the means by which he works his work, even in the most glorious of miracles, which is the salvation of a dead sinner to life in Jesus. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, remember she just said, come on, Jesus, it's, it's going it's to smell bad. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, now verses 41 and 42 are strange, Jesus is going to, he's going to pray to the Father for the benefit of the people there to display his unity with God. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus, ever the evangelist, not wanting to miss an opportunity for the people to know who he was and who he is, He's preaching the gospel to them, making sure that they understand. He's doing everything, even these miracles, so that people would believe in him. He's letting the people, he's letting us centuries later in on the fellowship and the relationship that he has with the Father and their oneness of purpose. In verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, friends, it's been noted, it's been noted through the centuries that if Jesus hadn't just said, and the way the tombs worked in, in, in first century Judaism, there would often be multiple people within a cave or a tomb and they would going to be stacked in there, maybe uh, vertically. And it's often been noted that if Jesus had not specifically called for Lazarus, if he would have just spoke to all of the dead in that tomb, that the, the whole host of, in fact, all the dead would have risen because of the power of Jesus to make dead alive. But what is Lazarus a picture of? What is this? Is this just merely an example of the fact that Jesus has authority over physical life? No, friends, it's much more than that. Lazarus is a picture of us. He is a picture of every person who has ever trusted in Jesus. Lazarus is physically dead, and his physical death is a picture of our spiritual death. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is saying that all of us are dead and we, we have no ability. We, we can't respond. We, we spiritually stink. 
And if you were to roll away the stone of our own lives and look behind the curtain of our own righteousness, it would be an odor. It would stink. We would have our sisters and brothers around us saying, no, 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 no. Don't show everybody what's really going on in his life because he is spiritually dead. He stinketh. Verse 4 of Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's how God saves people. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 is a theological explanation of the physical picture of what's going on in Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus is a picture of all of us. We're dead in our sins. And Jesus comes to his tomb and the life-giving power of the word of life, God himself speaks to Lazarus and he says, get up. And that which was dead now is made alive by the power of Jesus' word. This is exactly what happens to anybody and everybody that has ever trusted in Christ. We, by nature, are dead in our sins, unable to do anything to make ourselves right or reconciled with a holy God. Now, we may think we can. We may think that we can do things. We may, we may even attend church. We may even be, be members of a church. But, but a heart that has not been made alive by the grace of God is merely deceived and trapped in its own self-righteousness. That's a special kind of stink, by the way. And they, we are dead in our sins. And all of us that have become Christians, what happens to us is that we hear. We hear about the resurrection and the life. We hear that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now he is alive. He's the ruling and reigning and resurrected king. And he has the words of life that we have recorded for us in the Bible. And we hear it. And the Holy Spirit Spirit takes that word, it hits a dead heart, and it gives life to all that God has given to the Son. It makes us alive. We're dead, and now we are alive. Our, we were spiritually deaf, and all of a sudden we can hear. We were blind, but now we can see. Our heart was not beating, but now, all of a sudden, this seems to make sense to me. What's going on here? I trust in Jesus. I find myself believing. I find myself not liking the things that I used to be drawn to, and all of a sudden, I am alive. Friends, that's the message of the gospel. Not that you can do better because you can't, you stink. The message of the gospel is that we were dead in our sins. We were like Lazarus decomposing in a tomb and Jesus comes to our st the stone of our grave and he says, get up. For some of us it happened when we were five or six. For some of us it happened when we were 50. But it all happens the same way and in various forms. We were dead, and God makes us alive. And he makes us alive because Jesus has defeated the death. He, the sin that he was angry at, the sin that he was deeply moved at, he bears it, he extinguishes it, he removes it, he satisfies the righteousness of God. 
and he satisfies the penalty for our sin. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's alive and he commands us and he calls us. And the first breath of Lazarus when he gets up, he's not a robot. Lazarus is not a robot. He's a real man who's been made alive. He must, he must actually heed Jesus' words. Lazarus must respond. He must exercise faith and trust in what Jesus has said. Can you imagine Lazarus in the tomb? He's been dead for four days, and he's bound up in this linen. And all of a sudden, now he's alive, and he hears Jesus, this familiar voice, his friend telling him, get up. Well, at that moment, Lazarus must obey him. And what's that decision to get up now that he's enabled to do it? It's called faith. It's called trust. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, you've been, by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God and not the result of works so that no one may boast. So when God makes a dead heart alive, part of what he gives that new heart is this gift, this unmerited gift of faith. And now that dead person in the tomb, spiritually speaking, that's been decomposing in sin or self-righteousness, now is enabled to say, aha, no, it's not me that can do this. It's not my sin that will satisfy me. It's Jesus that will. And I get up. I trust in Jesus. And then there's this glorious, I don't have time to get into this, maybe next week. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Just because you got up from the grave, got up from the grave doesn't mean that you still don't have some work to do. Amen. I mean, Lazarus wasn't ready for the dinner party. He needed some folks to clean him up, and that's just called sanctification. That's, called, that's why you need a church, friends, by the way. I don't got time to get into that, but let me just tell you, you, me, all of us need people around us to help us clean up even after we are alive. So don't just, come on, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the snarky preacher. I'm, well, I have been at times. I, I'm, I, I, my friends, can I just, a plea? Some of you are out of town visiting friends, family for Easter. My friends, you need more than Easter Sunday. Man, you need more than Easter Sunday and Christmas. And I hope, whether it's this church or another, that this would be a place where you can, come on, come on, man, we need, we need, even after we're alive, we need people to unbind us and clean us up. And that's, that's the local church. That's the local church. So two truths, just two sentences, and we're going to end. Sentence number one, truth number one, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't give salvation merely. He is salvation. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin and defeated the penalty and the consequences of sin and rose again, to trust in him is to be in him. Now he, he doesn't only give new life, he is life. He, he is the resurrection. To trust in Jesus is to be in him and to receive all that he has. Do you believe this is the question that Jesus asked Martha? Hey, you can have doubts. Martha had doubts. Come on. You don't have to have this locked tight. Martha, Mary, John, John the Baptist had doubts. Do you believe? Belief, faith, saving faith is not the absence of 
of doubt or uncertainty. It's trusting in Jesus despite that. We walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And truth number two, Jesus calls the spiritually dead to life. He calls the spiritually dead to life. What should this produce in you, Christian? This should produce in us humility and worship. We didn't save ourselves. We are all like Lazarus. We were dead. We stunk. We were spiritually decomposing. But Jesus, not because of anything, but because of his great love for with which he loved us, he made us alive. This should produce in us worship and humility towards God. And if you're not yet a believer, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, this should produce in you hope. Because, friends, this is why the gospel is called good news. Because it's not a message that says that God is on this holy mountain. And if you will ascend the hill, he'll meet you halfway. You can't ascend the hill. That's the difference between the gospel and Christianity and every other major religion. It says you, you must do something to start climbing towards God. And if he sees you coming towards him in various forms or another, he will meet you halfway or he will wait till you get all the way to the top or he will react to you. Friends, the good news of the gospel starts with the bad news of the reality of our spiritual state, which is the state of Lazarus. We're dead. Dead people can't climb a mountain to God. But the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't wait for you to come to him. He comes down to you and he speaks words of life over all that will believe. And don't write yourself out of this. Don't say, well, God couldn't save a person like me. The gospel, the gospel of John in particular, is full of Jesus with lavish, free open offer to whosoever will believe. Jesus is standing at the graveside of every person and he is saying, will you get up? Get up! And that's why the gospel is such good news. Because Jesus comes to you. The question is, not whether Jesus can come to you or wants to come to you. The question is, do you believe this? How does that mystery work? I don't know. <laughs> I just know that the question for us is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you do, get up. Come out. Live. Trust in Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. The Lord, thank you for this beautiful scene that you've recorded for us. May you take my thoughts about it and use them as you will. Stir our affections for the good news of the gospel. And any that are dead in this room spiritually, make them alive, I pray. Call them out of the tomb and make them yours. Give them faith. Maybe they realize it now for the first time. Give them faith to turn from themselves and trust in Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.